0: Hello and welcome to the Human Nurture Podcast. This is season one and we are looking at the underlying theories that make up the psychobiological approach to couples therapy. And this episode is about family therapy. And as PAC therapists, we rely heavily on family therapy. Um, we have to organize a great deal of information within a pretty flexible structure. We have to be able to move in a bunch of different directions and we have to do this all while remaining present in the room. And so family therapy, we take a lot of our of our understanding about how to do this from the family therapists who came before us and who developed the theory and the practice. Um, because The family therapist has to sit in a room with a whole family and sort through all the information that's there, um, not ignore anyone, make everybody feel comfortable, but at the same time, um, try to move the ball forward in terms of helping the family with whatever challenges they're coming in with. The person we're going to be talking to today, who is Sherry Glukoft wong she really embodies this idea of the ability of the family therapist to kind of stay on message. Stay on point, remain connected, but also, but also, really move things forward, and um, and so Sherry has a great way of talking about that. The way that Sherry talks about things, you really get a sense of who she is in the therapy room, and especially the way she talks about sort of how um, fiercely she is on the on the side of the kids which doesn't mean, you know, sort of like a kid center that they, can, they should all have ten bowls of ice cream. It really means helping parents be in a position to be able to kind of get the best, do the best um, on behalf of their child. And in a lot of ways, this is um, similar to what we do as pack therapists in terms of secure functioning and helping couples to kind of get the best from each other so that they can be a, a good team. Um, so if you think about the episode that way in terms of when Sherry's talking about, about you know, um, being, being on the side of the kid and helping the kid to grow considering the parents that they've got, um, that, that that's a good way, of connecting that with secure functioning um, is a good way to think about that. Um, and then also in this episode is an interview with Stan Tatkin, the founder of PACT. And what I like about the um, the conversation with Stan is not only sort of, you know, his, his talking about his experience with actual early family therapists like, um, you know, Carl Whitaker and Virginia Satir and how formative to, um, to his learning, but also ways that, Family therapy and PACT can be integrated together. And so if you have questions or thoughts about, if you've thought about bringing in a family member, or if you've thought about, you know, kind of you get a case that, that's a more family therapy-oriented case, how can, you, how can you work that case, how can you work with that family or that couple from or with a PACT lens? Um, so, so that's great uh, in that in the interview with Stan. And then finally, Stan and I spend a bunch of time talking about the interview with Sherry. And um, personally, this was very gratifying for me because it's two of my mentors speaking together. Um, and um, and it turns out that there's a lot of overlap there, which was great to hear. Um, so that's, that's what's um, on... On deck for today. The next episode coming up is going to be with um, mindfulness. Nope, not mindfulness, meditation. That's part of the episode that you'll hear. Meditation um, with George Haas. And what I really like talking about, talking to George Haas, is that he comes at meditation from um, an attachment theory Lens and perspective, and so there's a lot of overlap with PACT. Attachment theory being one of one of the real pillars of our work. And George is very well versed in attachment theory and very well versed in meditation. And his talking about kind of how the two fit together um, is theoretically interesting. And then there's just the whole layer of um, how do you bring more of an idea of more of the ideas of meditation into um, into our work with couples. Uh, so that episode is gonna come up next month. Um, you can follow along with the podcast on Facebook at Human Nurture Podcast. Email me or, um, or reach out to me if you have any questions, comments, concerns. Um, without any further ado, here is the episode. Uh, so we are here today with on the Pack Street Podcast with Sherry Glukoft Wong. Sherry Glukoft Wong is a master family therapist, also a friend and colleague, and a and a and a very important mentor to me over the course of my career. So uh, it's wonderful to have you here today, Sherry.
1: Thank you, Jason. Nice to be here.
0: And we're actually at your house in Berkeley, and we just took a nice long walk and uh, got sort of warmed up for today. Uh, I'm going to start out just by reading your bio. Sherry Glukhoft-Wong, LCSW, is a family therapist, parent educator, and consultant. In addition to her clinical practice, Ms. Wong leads workshops and seminars nationally for public and private schools, community-based organizations, and private industry. She is known for her lively and practical presentations on topics including setting limits with heart, positive family communications, raising resilient children, Supporting Self-Esteem and Responsibility in Children and Navigating Your Children's Social World. She has worked with companies such as Gymboree, Apple Computer, Genentech. Ms. Wong also has lectured at UCSF, the University of California, Berkeley, and Stanford University. She provides consultation and training to a range of professionals, including teachers, school administrators, counselors, psychotherapists, clergy, physicians, attorneys, and corporate managers. Wonderful to be here with you today, Sherry.
1: Thanks, Jason.
0: So I thought we would just start out with I I think your work as a family therapist happens in two places. It happens in your office and it happens in the field. And I think you're a a true, you bring true meaning to the licensed clinical social worker in that you also do it in the field. I wonder if you could just talk about the two parts of your work.
1: Well, actually, I think maybe the most important thing to the most important thing to start with, is when I first got trained as a child therapist, it was right when family therapy hit the mental health scene. And I was lucky because it was also a time when there was money in mental health and in community mental health. So I got the opportunity as a training young therapist to work with Virginia Satir, Carl Dicker, uh-huh. and Saul Mnuchin, and with all of these masters and um, get the concept of what it means to approach supporting kids and families in a family therapy model and the value of it and and actually the limitations of individual work with kids. So there's... What's important about that is that I am always looking out for the well-being of kids in family life. And I know that parents are all wanting to do right by their kids and make families work for their kids and make parenting work and make that relationship work. So I've always been focused on the relationship part about what might be going on with behavior or feelings or interactions that people are having, or success, or failure, or challenges, um, school, playground. It's all about relationships in the family. That home is the training ground for how the world works. And kids, what they get at home is what they bring out in the world. So every way that I could have access to parents and influence in some way them to tune into those parts of themselves, I do. I found that the office is one great way to do it, to see families in my practice who have been referred, have concerns about their kids. But also I've been invited by schools to come talk to parents and watched as parent education evolved into less about parent information night and more about support for raising your kids, partnering with the school, as shift workers on the same job. And I've embraced that over the years. And then I've gotten calls, believe it or not, um, from corporations, you mentioned some corporations, say we wanna support our employees if their home life is going better, if they're feeling better about themselves as parents, we have a better culture at work, and they're more productive. We want to provide that as a benefit. So I've been working in lots of companies doing that.
0: Yeah, and and you have to be, in order to do that, you have to situate yourself somewhere that allows you to be very flexible, but at the same time, be very strong in your message. That's one thing that I really appreciate about your work. And can you talk a little bit about how you position yourself so that you can so that you can have such a broad impact um, in all these different places?
1: You know, I I appreciate your observation about that, Jason, and, and I'm flattered by it, because that combination of being clear in your message, but also flexible and responsive to people, is the key to parenting. It's the key to having the most positive parenting relationship. Um, that you can have and so we in the field need to model the same thing we're asking parents to look at doing in their in their lives and I think the thing that I would say to you is if someone were to ask me who are my main mentors I would say the children and parents that I've worked with over the years that is who I've learned the most from Having been in the field a long time, I continue to grow and continue to learn. When I have had kids in my office who have had issues on the playground and I've advised them about a way to approach it, and a kid looked at me and said, Sherry, kids don't talk like that. I said, that's right, I need to make a shift. I have learned over the years from kids and from parents, and I would say that that's probably the basis of what I bring to them. And it's probably what's most effective because it isn't an idea. It's actually experience. Um, So I, I, I stay open to that. But I also see a lot of patterns and share those patterns. So what I'll often say to parents is that kids need to know two things to feel good about themselves. One is that they're special and unique and there's no one else like them. And the other is that they're just like everybody else. And the art of parenting is knowing when to give which message. And the same thing is true for parents, that they and their family are special and unique and there's no one else like them. And they're just like every other parent and every other family in a lot of ways too. And being able to feel your uniqueness, and also know what connects you to everybody else, is so important in being able to keep your footing as you navigate this life.
0: And how do you how do you help parents? Uh, I, I guess the, the one thing that I really want to try to to try to focus on us today is the parenting. I mean, it's not even fair really to say the dyad, but, but the, because, because now, because the way that you work, it seems that you're thinking broadly, but for you, does it come back to that there are two parents who are, or, or that there is some sort of unit that is, that's helping a kid navigate the world?
1: So mind you, my practice is in Berkeley, USA, and I've been doing this for a number of decades. So sometimes, a lot of times, there are two parents, Uh, Sometimes there is a single parent. Sometimes there are four parents because parents have split up and remarried. Sometimes these days I've got grandparents often in a primary uh, caretaking role, so you have to count them as parents. Sometimes I have had six people in my office who all pretty much have equal waking hour time with the kids. Mm-hmm. So parenting gets defined in a lot of different ways in my practice. But yes, the majority of people, there are two parents that are need to be working together. But that doesn't mean that they have to be doing exactly the same thing in the same way. And in two-parent households, I am fond of saying that it's okay for each parent to be different with the kids because the kid gets to learn that there's at least two ways the world works and that with mom it's like this, with dad it's like that, or with mom it's like this, with other mom it's like that. It's a matter of having it work to be different.
0: Great. And so if if I'm in a household and or even if, if, it's, if it's parents that are divorced, and I really don't like the way that my partner is with my kid. How do you focus there? What what do you what what is the way that you work with parents if you know? Hey, it feels like you know he's just he gets the kids way too riled up, or he's way too wild with them, or he's just he doesn't he's he's too rigid. How do you help parents to have a to to position themselves so that they don't get caught? Um, in a in a battle between each other in trying to provide for the family
1: so what you're looking at is is actually a diversity issue so in the household we have a lot of diversity often there's gender diversity there's certainly age and stage of life diversity and there is also um kind of personal style diversity not to mention cognitive diversity and um, lifestyle diversity. So how do we take into account, as when we think about any kind of diversity, starting from a place of being respectful and saying that we have to figure out a way to make room for both of us here because we're different. And if you start from that place where if your partner gets the kids too riled up for your taste at bedtime, And then you're the person putting them to bed and that's hard to calm them down. Can you start from a place of appreciating that the kids are riled up because they were having fun, they enjoy that, it's a bonding thing between them, and that's great, and it's got a downside. So can we work together as partners, respectfully and collaboratively, to figure out how you can have the thing you want to have with them, and I can have the thing I want to have with them, which is an ease at bedtime is there room for both things? I think there is. Mm -hmm. I rarely see a family where there isn't room for everything.
0: And before we move forward, I just, I want to, I want to spend a little bit more time on the idea, because you are really good at getting a therapeutic alliance with everybody in the room. And you are, you are good at getting on everybody's side. And, um, can you talk a little bit about your approach to doing that? And it would actually be helpful to know, how do you know when you're not doing that and what do you do to self-correct? So let me start with
1: how I do that. It probably has to do with the place I come from in the first place, which is I'm very aware that everybody in the room is the most important person to each other. And that when they're mad or when they're, ang- they're arguing or when they're resentful or when they are um, even in some ways demeaning with each other, that is still one of the small group of people that are the most important to them in the world. And I start with a recognition of that. And I start with a recognition that everybody in this room is who my alliance needs to be with, each of them and all of them, and and to the family. I think of the family as a kind of entity, too, that I have a responsibility toward. So when because, because I'm mindful that they are important to each other, I kind of carry that and hold that even when they lose track of that. The thing that I think is important is I am really interested in just about anything a kid or a parent has to say to me, whether I agree with it or not. It's interesting to me. How come you think that? How is that for you? Um, I want to understand it. When somebody says something outrageous or even worrisome, I want to understand it. So People have the experience that I'm willing to join them instead of pushing back. And it, I think, probably sets a tone in the room and models that. And I think that has something to do with that part that you're talking about that everybody feels I'm, I'm on their side. And it helps to have somebody that everybody feels um, is on their side. That's the first thing. What was your second question? My
0: second question is, is how do you know when, you're not, when, when the alliance is not there? And what do you, how do you self-correct around, around the alliance when so, it's not there?
1: So the way I know it's not there is usually the way somebody is responding to me or treating me. They um, might be rolling their eyes or looking away or being argumentative with everything I say. So some therapists might call that resistant, and I would call that that we're not connecting or having a rapport right then, and I take responsibility for that. I have to figure that out. Sometimes I'll see that somebody in a family misunderstands, and this is another thing. I think most of what we call misbehavior in children is them just trying to figure out how the, how the world works, and they're just waiting for more information about that. And when you say stop, they stop. Um, but they haven't gotten the, the cues yet about what to do. And in the same way, in my practice, if I spend a lot of time talking with one person, the other person says, clearly you're taking their side, or clearly what I have to say isn't important. And I'll say I'm so sorry if that if I've just communicated that. I'm really sorry for that. That must have been really uncomfortable and not at all what my intention was. Let me clarify why I spent so much time with this. When you talk, I clearly understand what you mean. When she talks, I'm not as clear and I'm, I'm needing to take more time and I apologize for that. Usually the other person relaxes because they're worried that two women are going to have an alliance, for example. And he's hearing that, actually, I have an easy alliance with him. This one's harder. And it puts it in perspective. Mm -hmm. I work very hard to be honestly authentic. If somebody asks me, you know, why are you spending more time on this? I take a moment to think about it so I can respond about that and um there are other times where i'll be working with a family who came in about kids behavior and i'll notice at a certain point that one of the kids take signals to the other kid and they wander over to the other end of my office where the toys are and start playing the older one engaging the younger one and keeping the younger one quiet and entertained and away and after a while the parents notice and say hey, the kids are over there. I thought this is family therapy. Why are they over there? And I tell them, you know, in my experience, kids are usually my co-therapists, and they give me a lot of information in the course of the session about guiding me. And right now, they let me know that attention needs to be here for a while.
0: That's great. That's great. Uh, and, you know, for some reason, while you were talking, I was I was thinking about um, that... I, for, what popped into my mind is, is your work with neuro, um, with neuropsychologists, and how much you you work a lot with neuropsychologists. Yes, I do. And so, so I guess what I'm, I guess one thing that I really want to communicate here is 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 you have a deep feel for what's happening in the office with the family and a rapport and an alliance that you build, but you're also thinking um, clinically about sort of what's what's going on with the software and what's going on with the hardware of the people in the room and um and so i i just i want to get that in here because i think it gives a sense of you as a clinician so can you talk a little bit about when you see real deficits about how you about sort of how you think about it
1: yeah i think for starts a lot of the times families are referred to me it comes from um uh, a pediatrician a school um or somebody in a field that is concerned that something is going on where things seem to be off for a kid and wanting to understand that, that the somehow the kid is not fitting into the mainstream in terms of what would be, you would expect to see in learning or what you would expect to see in social development. And there's a concern about that and hoping I can get to the bottom of it. What I can say is it's way less about intuition, of which I don't have a lot of, frankly, and more a uh, ability to notice patterns and i've been around the block a lot so i've seen a lot and when a family comes in where the big issue is that kids the kid doesn't have friends and has a lot of difficulty on the schoolyard and has interactions that are problematic often in the neighborhood or on the schoolyard i pay attention to what the parents are describing i ask the kid about it and pay attention a lot how the kid sees it. And I can become aware that the kid may have some difficulty with retrieval, be slow processing, the kinds of things that show up socially, that particularly if a kid is bright, may not have shown up enough academically to get flagged, um, but is sooner or later going to catch up with that kid academically. And pretty early on, when I have a sense of that I will ask parents to consider getting a neuropsych eval that will cast some light on that. It saves a lot of years of therapy, of probing and trying to figure out what might be happening and addressing things that aren't informed.
0: What do you mean by patterns? When you say you've seen a bunch, you you watch the patterns, what is a pattern that you might watch?
1: Uh, One pattern would be when I hear kids tell me uh, that when I have schools or parents telling me that their kids are often accused of cheating and the kid tells me the other kids are the ones that are cheating or the kids say this kid has been really mean and that kid says no actually everybody else is being mean that you have a kid that's out of sync with the perceptions of other kids whose perceptions are are common with each other. I start to wonder about this kid's perceptions and especially I can sit in a room and feel just because I've seen so many kids that this kid is being genuine with me about this is my experience I I'm not they're not giving you that grin you get when they're putting one over on you they they really and truly don't understand what's happening I wanna understand why they don't understand what other kids their age understand.
0: And will you be looking for that pattern in the parents as well? Will you be so if a kid presents this way, will you be looking for what's going on in the kid in in the parents? Well,
1: two things. One is I look out I'll ask parents a lot of if I have a hypothesis like this kid, actually it may be sounds like a feature that i sometimes see a social way that dyslexia is expressed for example or i see a dysregulation in the kid that makes me wonder about executive functioning about impulsivity about some of these neurophysiological things that are running the behavior rather than something psychological i'll ask the parents about how these interactions happen at home One of the main ways I'll approach this is letting them know that I'm trying to sort out their child's can'ts from won'ts. They are assuming a won't where there may be a can't. So you'll get a parent who's exasperated because I have to tell my kid four times. That child may not have been attentive the first three times. Or that kid may have slow auditory processing and that parent isn't making eye contact. At first, I'll search for those things. And in my search for these kinds of things, and as I begin to tell parents the things I'm wondering about, one of them is often likely, one of them is likely to say, you know, my husband or my wife is like that too. Or somebody will say, you know, I'm like that. Or I get that feedback. And then we begin to look at um, DNA.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, with, you got, okay, so you get you get a family and you see the parents together and you go, whoa, this is, you know, the kid's got some stuff going on, but this is really an issue of the parents not being able to navigate together or regulate together or, you know, boy, they really seem like they just don't like each other, these two. How, how do you How do you handle that in a family therapy setting? So when you say there might be two
1: things going on, which is the kid has some issues, but also you can see that the parenting alliance is off track enough that it's very likely to be impacting what's going on for the kid. So one of the things that I do is I ask a lot of questions to get a good picture of things to make sure where their starting point is. Because a lot of the time you might see parents who would otherwise do better with each other, but the kid is so challenging that there's a level of fatigue and and constant provocation that makes it very difficult for them. If I can get things calmed down with the kid, it gives the parents a little more surface area to strengthen their relationship again, get on the same page and partner. But there might not be much hope for that while they are constantly feeling under siege. So I may have to support what's happening with the kid first. On the other hand, there are situations like I think you're referring to where, yes, the kid has issues, but you actually wonder how much of those are influenced by the discord between the parents, by the right hand not knowing what the left hand's doing, by the level of tension at home. And in that case, I will talk to parents and say, until we can get this leveled out, we can't really take a look at what might be happening here and help your kid. And most parents, no matter how difficult their relationship is, the well-being of their kid unites them. They will join to address the well-being of their kid.
0: Mm-hmm. And you, we said this, you were saying this in our walk, but I don't, I don't know if you've said it here, that you don't, you, they, parents will often wonder whose side you're on. Can you talk a little bit about how you position that?
1: Yeah. Parents especially, well, if they're divorced, if there's a lot of uh tension between them, if they're competitive, if they're resentful. They come in, and sometimes there's gender issues about that, but they will come in feeling like they're they're adversaries and wondering whose side I'm going to take. If they have an adversarial relationship, then I'm bound to be taking a side. And when I start noticing that, I right off the bat let them know that if you're wondering whose side I'm going to take here, I want to let you know I've already taken a side. There is a side I am on that I'm always going to be on, and it's the side of the well-being of your kid. So no matter what happens between you, no matter what either of you do or say, I'm going to be on that side. And almost always, everybody relaxes mm-hmm. because it puts, that puts us all on the same side. That defines a side that everybody's on.
0: Mhm. And you, I mean, and you're you you're like a family doctor. I mean, you will see people, you will see people across an entire lifespan. You'll see births and bar and bat mitzvahs and quinceañeras and and marriages and deaths all the way through.
1: Not only that, but I've been around enough that I have families in my practice where one of the parents was a young child in family therapy with me in their childhood. And I'm seeing them with their kids and their new family. <laughs> so that is a really touching thing to me hmm
0: Sherry, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how family therapy uh feels cumbersome sometimes i i my experience i mean i've i've you know we we have worked together a lot over the years, and I actually do wear a lot of family therapy, but it's often really hard to get people into the office and you always have a very refreshing take on this so i wanted to, you to talk a little bit about how do you how, how do you think about um getting people into the office and doing and and doing family therapy with them
1: okay so let me just start off to say that i i do have an ease with getting everybody into the office and part of this comes from in the very beginning when family therapy hit the scene there was an orthodoxy about everybody has to be there. You need to see everybody or you don't see them. And so I was sort of trained in that. So that was my assumption. So in the same way that I'm not going to start the car and move it until everybody's buckled in, I wasn't going to see them until everybody came in. And my clarity and conviction about that, in the same way that it is about some of the things in family life that we just do um, made people respond and come in. And I think many therapists think it's cumbersome and burdensome for parents and don't expect people to easily say okay. And they that comes across when they ask them to all come in. If you start with the of course... I feel about everybody coming in the way you might feel about somebody dropping off their six-year-old and not staying
0: mm-hmm.
1: or introducing them to you or something.
0: Or one partner from the couple showing up. And, and in the couples other... therapy, uh-huh.
1: yes. It's the same thing. So for one, I have that feeling. The other is I'll often say, I at least need to see everybody to start off because I need that perspective. I need to be in the situation that you're all in, which is that you all live together and are trying to navigate this. I need to be in there.
0: And what do you see? I mean, a family comes in, first of all, there's a lot of noise often, you know, especially um, if you're going to, you know, let's say you have even two, you know, let's say you have two adolescent kids and um, and and parents, there's a lot of noise what are you seeing? What are you looking for? And how do you, how do you, kinda, how do you organize yourself in a, in a family therapy session?
1: So you're right. There is so much to see. And one of the ways I get parents in is I tell them on the phone, I'm going to get the furthest, the fastest with you all here. That's why I work this way. And I do, I get very far, very fast. So first of all, I open the door to the waiting room and everybody's jabbering and talking because this is the only time they're together in the whole day. They don't even have family meals. They're all together in my waiting room and it's unique as opposed to the people who are used to hanging out together. And you can see that in the way they just kind of have an ease with, yeah, we're all here. Um, Or they're still having the fight they had on the way over. How How cool is that? I... Open the door and I see what I'm in for. Like, where are we starting? <laughs> mm-hmm. So they all come in. And almost always, just the coming in, who's going to sit where? Who Who um, is comfortable? Who is awkward? Who's waiting for instructions? Who are they looking to for that? I'll tell you one of my favorite sessions of all time is uh, parents called me with a concern about... Um, their son being uh, oppositional and he was about 10 years old so they had a couple of other kids but they were concerned about this kid they all come in and they all sit down and the kid that's about, the last kid which is this kid, about to sit down the dad says, hey Josh, shut the door will you?" and Josh says no and he sits down and the dad looks at me and says see what I mean? And I say, no, I'm not sure. What what do you mean? And he said, well, did you see what just happened? And I said, yeah, I noticed you gave your son an option and he took one. What are you talking about? (laughs) And that was the beginning of our work. And all of that happened right then. Carl Whitaker used to say that everything you need to know happens in the first 10 minutes. And there is a lot of that, that Mm. Helps you get your bearings. Mm
0: -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how how will you see that? And my impulse would be just to pounce on it and to make a big deal about it. What? How do you? What do you do when you when you you see? I'm I'm sure that a lot you people walk through the door. You're already assessing the direction you're going to go. You're kind of you kind of plant your flag and you say, "All right, uh, this is what I need to focus on." I'd imagine, and. Talk about the process of kind of how of getting there.
1: You know, that isn't always true. That is sometimes true. If I have a short amount of time, I've only contracted to see them for a short amount of time. If there is some urgency, there is a crisis going on, there's something we have to get to the bottom of, then what you just said is true. And I take the helm early on. But sometimes they come in and what they think they're coming in about is not exactly the thing that turns out to be happening in the room. So your example of they may come in with concerns about a kid and I see so much marital conflict that there's no way to even look at that. Then my shift goes to something entirely different.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that I wanted to ask you is you're in the room with a family and you go, boy, you know, mother and daughter, there is a lot of, there's a lot of tension between these two and you make the decision that in that session you are going to a kind of get a clear assessment of what's going on between these two and if you can if you can get to it you're going to actually really try to set up an intervention or or you're going to confront this in a way that by the end of the session you want to see something change is that do you think that way is that the way do you is that is that kind of the way you see the room
1: You know, what is fair enough to say is before they've even come in, I want to see something change. I'm in this to make a difference, to help life get better, to help relationships get better, to help kids thrive. And so I do want to see things happen. I'm not interested in week after week and let's talk about your feelings. I really want that always. If I'm in a family session and let's say there's a dynamic between a mom and a kid, uh, the mom and her daughter, for example, and that is a ever-present kind of dynamic that takes over a lot of the flavor of how things go in the family and in the household, and it's happening also in my room, in the, my office, there's two things happening. One is I'm getting a sense of that dynamic and that work that needs to be done because there's a lot of pain there. But I'm also getting a sense of what it feels like to be the other people in the family, the son and the father, the other daughter and the the other parent, who live with this dynamic. You're talking about a, a marital conflict. Sometimes what is much like living with a bad marriage is a A parent-kid conflict that colors the life of the siblings of that kid and that's it's really hard on the other kid so I get while I'm observing this dynamic I'm also feeling for the other people what it's like to be living this way and Mm -hmm. what it's like for them they aren't not part of that you know, Virginia Satir used to have an exercise. She did all these really fun things to teach people about family dynamics. I think she did them with families, but they should be done with professionals so you really get this. But she had a thing where she had everybody in the family tie a rope to <laughs> themselves, to everybody else, and then you held still, and then she said, oh, phone rang. What? Mom, go answer the phone, and everybody gets jerked around. That's really what it's like, and I'm the holder of that. I'm mm. the one paying attention to all of that at the same time. So I'm holding all of that.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, one thing that, like, for example, I'll call you and I'll say, you know, I'm working with this divorcing family. I want to have, I want the kids to, I want to help find therapists for the kids. And you'll say something to me like, are you sure you, that the kids want to be in, in separate therapies right now? Um, I mean, so you, there, there's a way, and then you're, you, the reason that you'll say that, and, and that you've said it to me in the past, my understanding of it, is because, you know, there's already a lot of separation happening in this family, maybe these siblings want to stick together, maybe they want to talk to somebody together, and there's just, there's a way that you stay focused on the clan, on the, on the team, on the, on, on the kind of, you keep a bigger picture of the family in mind, it seems, at all times, and can you talk a little bit about what, what is that? What are you doing when you do that? And, and what, what is the picture that you're holding on to?
1: You know, in a family, everybody's well-being depends on each other's well-being. It's hard to have well-being when the people who you are the closest to in the world and who you're attached to aren't doing well. Or you're out of touch or not feeling connected Too. So, when, if parents are splitting up, first of all, let me just say something about child, individual child therapy in general. I think it's a great experience for a lot of kids on the one hand, Um, and an important thing for children. But I would say my criteria for that is generally when the parents are unable to be that resource for the children. And they're unable to be for one of two reasons. One is they are limited themselves or struggling with their own things that are giving them a kind of limitation in their availability to parent their kids around those issues. That would be one issue. The other is sometimes kids really do have needs like managing anxiety and things like that that the parents aren't experts at. Mm -hmm. And they need to see an expert on their own to get help with that. But most of the kind of therapy we talk about, uh, sending kids to, like processing their feelings, I think that can happen in the context of family. And I also think that depending on what the nature of the divorce is about and what parents are hoping for, some parents, there really is a fracture in a family and a terrible crisis that has gone on. But, you know, I find that kids take a comfort in coming to see me who knows their parents, who knows this from the inside. And by the way, every now and then I'll send parents out of the room because a teenager will talk to me about sex, drugs, and rock and roll and won't talk to their parents. And I send them out of the room and I'll talk to that kid alone. And tell the kid what part of this we have to be talking to their parents about. Mm, And mm -hmm. they are open with me knowing I'm going to do that Mm -hmm. with some part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, And come back in. And I don't think of that as any less family therapy. Mm -hmm. Uh, If if I'm working and doing parenting work with a couple and one of them has, for example, one of them has serious health issues and has died or is dying and then dies, that person says, Can I, do I not get to see you anymore because you're a family therapist? So this is still family therapy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll see a single parent and consider it family therapy, even though I'm working with that parent alone on parenting. It's a matter of how you you hold it as family work. So in the case of kids and divorce, m- Many of the people that call a therapist or are concerned enough to want to come in are less splitting up and are more spreading out. Mm-hmm. They are saying, we can't be together. We don't have the kinds of feelings or relationship to be together in a married way, but we still want to partner around raising our kids. And those kids need to see that part happen. And eventually... I work with the kids with each parent in their own household and not the other parent so that they can feel that sense of, we have two households now.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I like the work to reflect what's so about their lives.
0: What What do you think about couples therapy? I mean, you know, you have, uh, it sounds like you have definite ideas about kids in therapy. What, what do you, uh, as a, as from the perspective of a family therapist, what are your, how do you think about couples therapy?
1: Um you mean couples therapy, meaning the couple has come in to work on their relationship together? Yes, yes. I feel really strongly that to every extent they possibly can, if a couple is having difficulty, trying to address that together is optimal. Uh, there was a great article that I think Carl Whitaker wrote years ago, that was um a I forgot the name of it it was a great um it was a, a great title something like the the risk of divorce or the liability of divorce when a couple is in conflict and somebody gets seeks psychiatric help on their own and mm. it was um it was such a good point because i do think that if you're struggling in a marriage and you go to your own individual therapy to process that, the likelihood is not as strong. Now, that, that, that you'll be able to stay together and work it through because it, it takes working together. On the other hand, that being said, some people have work to do on their own before they can address their marriage. So a person who is so angry that all they can do is blame and they can't get out of it might need some help with that. Somebody who has an issue like alcoholism that is really getting in the way may have a piece of work to do on that. There are, um, some people who have a terrible time expressing themselves in any kind of way that another person would know what they mean, need some help with that. So I'm not saying that work on yourself might not um, have a place ahead of marital work. But I think couples working together is imperative on learning the skills of how to get through that with each other.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, my job, like a parent's job, is to have parents not need me eventually. Uh
0: Uh-huh.
1: And as a couples therapist, and I do a lot of couples therapy, my hope is that they can get through the next bump they have on their own. I'll Mm -hmm. be there. They come and go in my practice over the years, often because who knows what life's going to throw you from left field. But my hope is that they internalize what happens in my office and bring it home
0: how How much of a of a case do you make for the couple needing a relationship outside of the kids and needing to kind of uh take care of each other outside of the family life how How much of a case do you make for that
1: I think it's critical, and moreover, I see a lot of parents for whom their children are so important are such a big priority. They can't imagine leaving for an evening in the week to spend time with each other because they would, the kids would miss them or they would miss out on something. And what I say to those parents is then don't do it for your marriage. Do it for your kids mm-hmm. so that they can learn something about what grown-up peer relationships with people who are close and love each other look like. Let them know you're important to each other. Because if the ways you're important to each other are only showing up once the kids go to bed, they don't get to know that.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about um, parents regulating each other? How do you, in terms of, you know, um, I, I mean, I'm sure you hear this all the time in your office, like... You know, she goes ballistic, and I'm just trying. You know, and and I don't have any choice but to tell the kids, hey, you know, um, your mom has a big temper, and she's not right right now. But let's, you know, let, let's let's help. You know, let let let's 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 get you the help. All of a sudden, the mom becomes the one who's the problem here. Yeah. How do you how do you deal with parental regulation?
1: Well, the way that shows up as a complaint in my office is a parent says, the other parent is undermining me. Mm -hmm. I say this, and then he or she does that. And usually the undermining is when you ask the other parent, how come this parent said this and you did that? I felt she was being or he was being too harsh. I felt he was being too rigid, too unreasonable, wasn't taking this into account. Uh, I couldn't line up. With what that parent did, and my kid needed something else. I love my kid. I gave my kid what they needed. So I think that both of those things matter. Mm-hmm. I think I say to the parent that feels undermined, thank goodness the person you're partnered with loves your kid, follows their instincts to support your kid's well being.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: want to be with somebody that does that for your kids. And I say to the other parent, your partner feels undermined because they, feel, they want to have the kind of relationship where they are good for their kids and their kids are responsive to them. Thank goodness you have somebody with that motivation. Now let's talk about how to make this all work. So what I try to do is teach the parent who, let's say, feels concerned or critical of how the other person is handling something, to go to the heart of the matter and say, how can my partner feel supported by me at the same time that my child feels supported by me because this parent is being harsh? Mm-hmm. And one way you can do that is to try to find an alliance with that screaming parent and understand that the kid frustrated the parent the parent is telling that kid for the fourth time and has lost their cool. And I recommend that you go over, put your arm around your partner, and turn to the kid and said, Mom or Dad is really frustrated with you right now because he or she, I heard him or her try to say this four different times, and now they're really frustrated. And I know he, she or he doesn't like yelling either, but they're frustrated. So let's try to figure out a different way and address it. The first parent feels heard, seen, gotten, not made wrong, mm-hmm. and also is relieved that a level head came in because they couldn't get a grip. Uh-huh. There are ways to approach this that include everybody.
0: And that's your stance? I mean, so... Is, 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 and then
1: they deal with what happened later.
0: But there's a hierarchy there, though, right? I mean, there, there, you, 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 you clearly believe in that, that, that the parents have a better sense of... or. The parents have a better sense of kind of, you know, the rules or guidelines or limits that should be in place. And so you're supporting the parents in leadership in Supporting le- leadership their leadership skills. in the family. And then what are you doing with the parents? You're putting the parents, you're saying you both have, uh, there's a whole, you're, you're both seeing different parts of, the, of a picture that's a whole. And I want you two to be good at holding that whole together. Does that, does that sound right?
1: I think yes, but I think there's two different kinds of things. Most of the time, most parents I see are in a deeper way philosophically aligned. So the what they're concerned about, they agree about. They might agree that a, a kid should be respectful and not disrespectful. How that should look or how they approach it, they may disagree about. Mm-hmm. So I try to find the common ground of the what. Like the parent that went ballistic went ballistic because the daughter rolled her eyes. The other parent doesn't think an eye roll is disrespectful. But that other parent agrees that there should be respectfulness. It's just how respectfulness is showed they disagree about. Mm -hmm. Or how you approach it when your kid is being disrespectful. If You're yelling at them, then you're being disrespectful and you wonder why they got disrespectful mm-hmm. um so i try to get the parents if they aren't ally- allied around the what's to figure out what we're going to do about those differences and then to look at the different approaches to the hows and what approach they want to have what are the hows that are inbounds and out of bounds
0: mm, that's so good and the and do you care about what the what's are i mean do, do you let's say that let's say that you don't agree with their what's you don't agree let's say that you know that um that you feel like you know this parent these these parents are agreed that there should be a lot of disrespect in the house you know no,
1: it wouldn't be like that what i what i would might see uh, that would would be a real stretch of a hypothetical uh-huh. what i might see is parents thinking that you shouldn't say no to kids that they should feel loved and cared about. And so they're running the show and there's a lot of chaos and life is pretty stressful at home. But both of them have a difficult time setting limits because it feels mean. And both of them had authoritarian parents and they don't want to repeat that experience with their kids. They want to be loving. And that is a what that I would... um want to provide more information about that the two concerns I have there is that kids in their development need the experience of limits and hearing no it's just part of the daily uh, diet of life is that sometimes you hear no you need to manage disappointment and they're going to get those things out in the world and they'll be ill-prepared not being chosen for the team or when a kid says, no, I don't want to play with you if they are never disappointed at home. I'd rather they learned about that from the, parent, the people in the world that love them the most. And it, it, um, it doesn't help them with the kinds of boundaries and relationships that they're going to form because no one else in the world is going to be accommodating in that way. So they're ill prepared for that. So I would make a case and let parents know that there are ways to keep their values, which are to stay loving and caring and responsive to their kids and set limits. You can be kind and firm all at the same time and hope that then I have two parents in the same boat trying to move towards something um, and helping them partner around and supporting each other to make that change.
0: Mm. It's so good. We're going to have to start heading towards the conclusion of this time. One thing that I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about is your own self-regulation. And you have an ability to stay thinking, stay calm, stay compassionate through shitstorms of what's going on around you. And I wonder how in my office,
1: my <laughs> kids might disagree <laughs> right, with that. Right,
0: right. Well, but I mean professionally, I mean your your ability to to not only not only stay regulated yourself, but I would say remain sort of the master regulator in the room, the one who is sort of who is the uh, kind of calling the shots in terms of where things are going to go in a collaborative way is really is really remarkable. And w- w- how do you do that?
1: It's called staying on my spot, and it has to do with a kind of personal alignment. That's another podcast, but a kind of personal alignment where I get my head, my heart, my gut, and my feet are planted firmly in a role that I'm there for in the room. You know, to me, what a therapeutic relationship is, is it's a deliberate relationship with a goal. I am there to help people with what they need help with. And everything I do is in the service of that goal. And while I am keeping my eye on that, everything that happens falls into so now what do I do with that and I stay on my spot it moves with me as I move in response to them and so I guess what a lot of people would say is it's kind of being in a zone it's like being a basketball player or a football player that I'm in a particular zone and I'm able to stay there and that doesn't mean I don't laugh or cry or worry um, because I do, but I'm very mindful of my role with
0: mm-hmm. them. And my and my experience of working with you and consulting with you is that you're is that along the way, I can actually now that we've spent a lot of time together, I can watch as you're sort of picking up pieces to go back to your to this alignment that you're talking about. Is that you're actually listening? As, as what's going on in the room, you are slowly picking up pieces that, you can, that, that go into that. And then you'll often say, let's go back to that piece. And, and, and I can feel you sort of pr- pulling things into the alignment in which you're seeing them.
1: Yes. And I want to say, Jason, that when I started out as a family therapist, I remember one of my early sessions sitting in a room with a family, uh, three kids and a widowed mom and listening to the issues that they were raising and thinking to myself, you guys need to see somebody about
0: this.
1: (laughs) And then I realized, oh, wait a minute. That's what I'm supposed to do. So I didn't start off that way. It's taken um, experience to find your spot and then to know how to bring yourself back to it. And it's the same kind of spot you have as a therapist that you have as a parent or you have as a partner, or you have as a neighbor, that finding your place in a relationship or in a job you're doing, and being able to, to hold that, whatever is dished out, being the port in that storm. Uh, that's what I think the job is.
0: Wonderful. Well, that seems like a really good place to leave it. Sherry, thank you so much for your time today. I feel like we could just I feel like we just got started, but uh, we do have to stop. And I so appreciate um, being able to talk to you about family therapy today. Thanks, Jason. Hello and welcome, Stan Tatkin. Once again, back on the Human Nurture Podcast. Great to see you, Stan.
2: Great to see you, Jason. I'm just going to get myself some coffee. Okay,
0: Sorry. go to uh, <laughs> hello. So we got first up today. We've got uh, family therapy and systems and systems thinking and I was hoping you could just kind of lay down the drumbeat for PACT and Family Therapy and Systems. Uh,
2: well, Family Systems was the, the very first exposure I had to psychology. Uh, that was in my uh, internship, actually even as a trainee before I w- was an intern. And so uh, I, I was exposed to several different models. Uh, Satir, uh, the communication model I, I loved, and I always wanted to be Virginia Satir. So I can move people around without fear of anything. And now I feel like I've, I've achieved that being 65 years old. Mm. Um, and, so, uh, and so Satir made a huge, huge impact on me. Uh, Carl Whitaker, who I got to know before he passed away, huh. also made a huge uh, impact on me me, um, the idea of being the clown at the bullfight, being the fool in the room, uh, the person who uh, uh, is there to expand the psychological field for the couple, for the family, um, so that they can talk about things they would never talk about. Um, Whitaker could, could always apologize, but, uh, but uh, he would be the one to say the uh, uh, the unthinkable, mm-hmm. and his partner would be the one who would sort of play straight man to that. Um, And so I loved um, Whitaker's thinking and the way he was with patients. Um, Ultimately, I think I settled with Pact on structural family systems, Mm. um, uh, uh, Mnuchin, because I also found Mnuchin's idea of structure hierarchy to be really important, uh, especially in framing the idea of secure functioning in a couple. As being the top of the food chain, the roof of the house, the big honchos. And that that structure has to follow a hierarchy, otherwise it will not uh, it will not exist over the long run. And then strategic family systems. I uh, confess that I had an aversion and an allergy to strategic systems in the beginning. Uh, Peggy Papp, Jay Haley, because I felt it was too manipulative and I came from a school that frowned upon that and frowned upon psychoanalysis, uh, basically humanistic existential um, mm-hmm. school and so but it, uh, later I, when I started working with uh, with couples and with groups, I found that i loosened up a bit and understood better the role of a strategic therapist. And uh, now I think it's uh, a fabulous way to work Mm -hmm. in in couples, not individually, but in couples.
0: Yeah. There's a kind of maturity that comes that you see in Virginia Satir and Carl Whitaker. Um, And I mean, what do you you think that, is that one thing that you really appreciate about um, family therapy and family therapists is their kind of ability to kind of just roll with whatever's in the room?
2: rolling with whatever is in the room but also um looking at a whole picture and dividing it into its parts um you know uh uh i I was a fan of gregory bateson um uh who uh, some say started this whole thing of systemic thinking uh was one of the people and Mm -hmm. the idea of, of looking at uh at uh, uh, the parts of a system, how they operate, and how the system um, entrains its members uh, uh, in certain ways, I find fascinating. Um, And that there is, uh, you know, they're no longer individuals in a sense, that there is a, um, uh, there's a riptide, there's a current uh, that uh, gets everyone to be a certain way, um, uh, interpersonally, uh, roles, for instance, um, you know, the way people interact and, and self-assign or be assigned roles in the family, and how that system in its own way, for better or worse, um, remains a kind of, uh, maintains a kind of homeostasis. Mm-hmm. And I found that always fascinating. So I think um, the idea of multitasking several people at the same time, uh, I, I find fun. Puzzles, I find fun, you know, uh, that this is a puzzle. How does it fit together? And then ultimately, again, strategically, where are you going to go? How are you going to work the system? Mm-hmm. And one thing, I, one a group I didn't mention that I'm also uh, enamored with was enamored. With uh, the Milan group, mm-hmm. um, and uh, in particular, uh, their eventual landing on circular questioning, which is cross questioning, is what we do now. But uh, but circular questioning, I I loved uh, as a way to get information and to interact with family members. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it, one one thing. I, so I my background is in, is in family therapy, and one challenge that I had transitioning from family therapy to Pact was that in family therapy, there's such a focus on differentiation, on kind of getting everybody to kind of put their viewpoint out there and kind of learn to kind of grow with each other as they, as they express their, you know, kind of the difference between themselves and the relationship. And there's something different about PACT. And I think, am I in the ballpark in terms of a difference between secure functioning and differentiation?
2: Um, actually, secure functioning doesn't directly uh, uh, address. Uh, individuation, separation, or differentiation. Those are uh, different models uh, I just mentioned. Uh, that's because you, you cannot be secure functioning um, and not be uh, differentiated. You can't be fully individuated. You, you, you uh, can't have a problem, a big problem, with uh, separation, individuation, and be secure functioning. That's because uh, secure functioning assumes that these two individuals are differentiated. They are autonomous uh, individuals, two separate minds, two separate bodies, two different uh, histories, Um, and that they are, uh, uh, you know, basically never going to align perfectly, right? There is no such thing as perfect alignment. There is no such thing as one-mindedness. There is no such thing as being on the same page at the same time. The best we can do is to approximate each other uh, and, and and then to have all the other tools available to us to air correct and heal and I mean repair and all those other things we do because we are different and separated so uh, in order for for a couple to be a two person psychological system fully fair just and uh, and sensitive uh, fully collaborative and cooperative. They have to accept the idea that they are different. They have to have to have a different voice because they have a job to do They're, uh, they They are mutually bound by their own principles that go in both directions. therefore, there can't be codependency because the same behavior the same uh the same uh, uh, choices when it comes to distress relief decision- making and so on um, they're both bound by the same principles they both have to show up they both have to hold each other to account mm-hmm. and uh, and so that, that's why when we talk about we expect secure functioning we're pointing uh, to uh, to a direction where they must go because by consensus with the couple there is nothing that uh, that they can do that will guarantee a long-lasting relationship anything else will fail it's too unfair so, with everyone on board with that goal, and the therapist expecting and pushing them toward there, uh, they 're going to push back with their, uh, their defenses, their deficits, they're um, not wanting or think they should have to do these things, and that 's where we 're going to be working. So we are constantly uh, uh, pressing on partners to, uh, uh, to move beyond developmental delays which will always include uh, not only ungrieved losses, but also uh, issues around self-activation, activation activation of the true self, Mm -hmm. which requires a reality ego that does the right thing over what feels good in the moment. And so differentiated individuals um, uh, are able to employ reality ego. Uh, that means that I'm a separate person, I can think for myself, I can think contingently based on what's happening in the moment, not automatically. Um, I'm able to employ Porges' uh, social vagal system, I'm able to hold and wait and be able to consider. Uh, I'm able to, uh, to rally my internal resources to be able to uh, work with another person to get what I want without using fear, threat, or guilt. All of those things require uh, a a level of differentiation. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, uh, we're not at secure functioning.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you think that you can do PACT with a family in the
2: room? Yes, I have done PACT with the family in the room. Um, what I uh, prefer is to do, uh, and I think I've, we've talked about this before, is um, I I think it's important to see a family at least once all together, Mm -hmm. but I've come to like breaking them up into dyads and mixing and matching them. And I find that that is really, really effective. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Not only uh, uh, are we working with issues of differentiation when we're working dyadically because people can get lost in the room uh, given their roles. um, But, uh, not so much when they're in uh, in dyads as in couples therapy. Mm-hmm. They're, they're dealing with that one other person where I can, um, I can look and I can watch to see how they're interacting and whether they're being truthful and whether they're uh, uh, thinking about the relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I find that really effective. And uh, I know that, um, that you addressed this also with Sherry about the problem of getting everybody in there. Mm-hmm. And I like her attitude about that, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, how she feels about it, how she uh, says it, how what she expects uh, uh, helps determine what the family does, but also that she's not going to not do therapy unless everybody's, you know, strapped in the car, right? She's going to do a family therapy with who's there. Mm-hmm. So my way is just a little bit different today in that I, I do uh, like to break the them up into diets as long as the, the youngest person is no younger than 12 or 13.
0: Mm-hmm. And why do you say that? Why do you say, why, for you, why is 12 or 13 kind of a, a bar to set? Uh, be, because
2: th- that is where, where um, at least w- we say, um, you know, in terms of uh, uh, legality, um, where a child uh, could be mature enough to do the kind of therapy that is talk therapy. Uh-huh. That is talk therapy. And so if we were doing something else, if this were, let's say, uh, uh, an infant or a young child, um, then I, uh, I would probably work differently the way I did before I started working with couples. And that is, I'd be um, helping to regulate the master regulator, which is the parent. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, we would put stress on the system. Um, and see how uh, see how the uh, parent-child uh, dyadic system is operating, and then help the parent uh, mm-hmm. manage and regulate the child.
0: And that might happen with the kid never coming into the room. I mean, that might happen just through putting pressure in the dyadic arrangement in the in the couples therapy and then having them kind of report back on where you know kind of how that worked i'd imagine
2: no it's filmed um the child is in the room oh the child's Um, in the room right right but i'm i am not interacting with the child the same way as i'm interacting with the parent or parents Uh so uh let's say let's say have a couple and they're having a hard time uh co-regulating uh, uh, with the child around because the child, uh, child's behavior is frustrating to one or, the, or both of them. Um, I will set it up so that the session is stressful um, so that I can, I can observe the parents dealing with the child. In other words, I may give a task to set something up and then maybe a minute to put it away um, mm-hmm. uh, altogether. Uh-huh. Um, I'll, I'll videotape that and then set up another time with the, the couple to come in. We play the video and I've at times even recorded them while they're watching it. Um, And then we'll talk about what happened Mm -hmm. uh, and what was difficult. Uh, So I'll work with the parents and then they'll come in again with the child. We'll do the same thing. And then I'll work actively with the parents to co-regulate or to regulate the child and each other Uh under the the stressful situation.
0: Uh, That's cool. That's cool. The um, one thing that, that the, That people in training often have challenges with is the description of the kid having, let's say, melting down, and then the other, and then the parent gets dysregulated. And to what extent does the does the other partner protect the child from the parent? And this 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 gets, and you know, and Sherry has this. You know, she says the parent is telling the kid for the fourth time and has lost their cool. I recommend that you go over. Put your arm around your partner and turn to the kid and say, mom and dad, are, mom or dad are really frustrated with you right now because I heard he or she trying to say four different times and now they're frustrated. And I know, um, you know, that he doesn't like yelling as a way to figure out how to address this. The first parent feels heard, seen and gotten, not made wrong and feels believed that a level head came and feels believed that a level head, relieved that a level head came in because they couldn't get a grip. So it's a little bit different, but I'm curious to hear where you kind of fall on all this.
2: It's still consistent uh, with regulation theory that, uh, that the, the, the master regulators, the older people, the people who have the wherewithal, the people who are in charge, um, um, have to stay regulated in order to deal with the child. Whether the child is, an, uh, is a toddler or uh, you know a young child or a preteen or teenager uh, it, it would be a little bit different, I think, as the child gets older in terms of how that that would be said. But I think for a young child that's perfect um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and again, the proof is always in the pudding. Uh, does the other parent feel um, dismissed? Uh, feel uh, defeated feel like they're being fired undermined undermined Uh, do they feel that the other parent is taking over those are things that are harmful in the long run to the relationships all all uh, in a terms of the triad all corners of the relationship so we want to protect partners from that and that's why you know we have this idea of regulating the regulator Mm -hmm. so uh, so uh, in that example that Sherry gives, uh, the other parent is coming over, calming the uh, the other parent, but aligning with them, not taking over, and then talking for the two of them, in a way that doesn't uh, that doesn't infantilize or diminish uh, the one that got dysregulated. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- th- this, it's all a state issue, uh, state management issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're dealing with couples one of the things we want to make sure of is that they are good co-managers of distressed states, all distressed states, and that includes dealing with a a third, like a child, Mm -hmm. and that they understand that uh, their first job is to co-manage these states quickly so that they're able to think again and and deal with a third properly rather than take over or attack or do anything else. Mm -hmm. So as long as those principles are held to all relationships are protected. Um, and so we have to teach people this. We have to uh, uh, get them uh, f- frustrated, stressed, and, and get them to do this because it's not intuitive. What's intuitive is to, is to, stop, uh, is to stop the problem altogether mm-hmm. um, in any way uh, th- th- that other person can think of the, that is becoming threatened by the sounds. Mm-hmm. Right, right. yeah. That sounds so. So what she did, I think, is, is fabulous, and that is what we want to do. It just may not work as well as uh, a child gets older, because uh, then it does. It might appear that uh, one parent is stronger, better than the other, mm-hmm. as felt by that you. other parent. Right. So, it, so when I say proof is in the pudding, as long as they feel fine, the partners feel fine, that's great.
0: Right. And that's, and I see what you're saying. So if it's an older kid and you've got like, you know, like you and Tracy will describe, you know, that Tracy will just come up and rub your back while you're, while you're doing it as a way to regulate the regulator. Right. And, but that would, that's an example of an older kid where you don't really want to add a whole lot more words and you kind of don't want to, you know, you've got two, you've got a more developed young mind there that can sort of, that can really parse out, you know, kind of, you know, are you up, are you upstaging the other parent here? What's happening?
2: Yes. They'll see through it. And, and what's more important is that the parent who's being helped um, imagines that the child can see through it. So, again, optics. Um, and when the person who is dysregulated, um, their, their perceptions are off uh, because of the state. And so almost anything can sound like it's a threat. Mm-hmm. That's why the other parent, the parent that's coming in to regulate them, has to be sensitive to that and do uh, something that's unequivocally um, friendly, helpful, non-intrusive. So I might go to Tracy if she is angry uh, with our daughter and I, I might just uh, uh, say to her, um, do you want any help? Are you okay? Um, just quietly. Um, and then she can say, no, I'm fine. And then I'll leave. That resets her and allows her to do a better job. That's the best way to protect the child, not to take over, but to reset the, the dysregulated parent who's feeling helpless. Um, And that's what gives rise to this: is the uh, parental helplessness. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Helplessness uh, is also uh, an easy way to get to aggression. Right? Mm -hmm. We are more aggressive when we're helpless. So, basically, you're coming in to uh, to uh, bolster uh, that partner's sense of uh, of importance uh, and sense of authority by simply being near them and not taking over, not judging. Uh, and that you know that right away brings their arousal down to a level where they can think and do a better job. That's that's great. And then yeah, and then t- and then take your notes backstage, right. Uh, right? with each other.
0: Right. I love the idea of just sort of framing it as parental helplessness. That actually, I think, um, is a really that's very useful. It's just okay. So these are parents who are feeling helpless, and that creates states in which they get dysregulated. That's, that's right. That's very that's very helpful. What do you, what do you do when? Um, when you're hearing that, you know, that these, they, this, this couple might be more uh, well-functioning together or might be more secure functioning, but they've really got a challenging kid. And it really does, it's really sounding to your ears like, whoa, there's something up with, you know, this kid developmentally or needing, that's needing attention. Um, ha, tell, can you talk a little bit about, I guess it's sort of putting on the parent consultation hat and going with that. Can you talk about that shift a little bit? <sighs>
2: Yeah, there there are a lot of, um, we get a lot of cases as couple therapists where the child um, has a psychiatric disorder or has a developmental uh, uh, problem that is difficult to diagnose, but behaviorally um, is holding the entire family hostage. So you have a bipolar kid, perhaps, um, or you have a, a child who uh, is massively dysregulated, um, uh, cannot uh, break their own acceleration uh, uh, might say a poor vagal braking system a child that can't tolerate uh, any negative uh, experience uh, and can't recover very well these will all, all uh, cause wear and tear on everybody in the house um, and, uh, and there's so many different ways children um, uh, Uh, can be disruptive and even scary to other members of the family. And because it's very hard for us to diagnose children because they're a a constant, you know, it's like whack-a-mole, it's a a constant moving target because of brain development, Mm -hmm. still have to deal with the problem of disruption in the home and uh, the parents not being able to go anywhere. They can't go on vacations. Um, They have to, in some cases, make sure the other children are safe because this child is aggressive Mm-hmm. Now, these are our heartbreaking cases that where we're we're really now uh having to work with the couple to be a really good couple really good caregivers for each other good managers of each other so that they can do this together and not uh and not uh, uh start to fight mm-hmm. because of all the commotion and uh you know the chaos in, in the home uh, that's when it's even more important because the couple really now has to work together and uh, mm-hmm. in, in, uh, not only in the moment but also afterwards to resource each other uh, so they can uh, they can uh, still uh, have a life right mm-hmm. um, sometimes these kids will absorb everything absorb all the light in the house uh, all the time that they have and some of that has to do with how the coupled system is operating or not operating properly mm-hmm. uh, that's uh causing more of a resource strain uh and uh and and more of um, ab- adversity between the partners mm-hmm. so that's where we come in because we can't do anything about the child
0: yeah but uh, so so and, and so you would not advise Couples therapists to get lost in the weeds of sort of, you know, how do you do the parenting work with the child as much that's that?
2: Well, that's where uh, this idea of having that child come in. Hmm. Not for family therapy, Hmm. but to uh, to put the couple under stress and watch what they'll do Hmm. and help them. See, Um, uh, they're the ones that are at home with the child. The therapist isn't. And while child therapy, I think, is valuable, um, th- there's a certain point uh, at, at certain ages where I think it's important for the therapist to see the parent and the child together and to, uh, and to have them uh, under different, um, uh, you know, different uh, variations of stress to see how uh, 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 they'll behave at home. Mm-hmm. Right? We want to mm-hmm. see what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then help the parent to uh, to manage. Again, it's a, it's a state issue. State drives memory, memory drives state, and state alters perception. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so a lot of this is uh, is working to regulate the parent.
0: Very cool. Okay. Um, It's such an exciting area. And I think there's a lot of work that can be done by PAC therapists um, in, in, in that particular area. Um, Any final notes, thoughts, uh, comments about uh, the interview with Sherry that you think people should be
2: listening for? She's wonderful. And I I really recommend that people listen to this, this, uh, this interview. I thought it was fabulous. And, uh, uh, and uh, it's really good to listen to, a master therapist, which she clearly is. Mm. Um, and uh, she has a lot to say, a lot of wisdom. And th- there was something she said that I, I wanted to remember. I forgot to write it down, but it was really, it was really funny. It was really lovely. Um, it, it said something about the way she thinks. Um, that I thought was, uh, uh, that said about the way she holds herself the seat that she takes sitting,
0: um, uh, staying on her spot is the, is the word that she often uses. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. It, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, for those horse people, um, you, you learn to find your seat, mm-hmm. um, and you're no longer struggling when you ride a horse. Um, as therapists, we, 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 uh, spend time finding our seat and, uh, Uh, And that says a lot about how we self-regulate, how we manage the room. And a lot of it it has to do with being in role. As she Mm -hmm. said, you know, at home, I may not be the same with my kid, but uh, in my office, uh, I know what my job is. I know what I'm trying to do. uh, And I've done it so long that uh, I'm very, very comfortable in that chair.
0: Mm -hmm. You just jogged one last question I want to ask you, which is she had that nice thing about, you know, I try to teach families That they're just like every other family and they're unique.
2: That was it. That was it, yes.
0: And would you say we do something similar? Is that what we're trying to do too?
2: Yes. Whenever I tell my couple, this isn't just you, this is everybody. There's nothing unique here, there's nothing different. You're not special. Um, uh, uh, This is the human condition. Look around. However, you still have to do these things in order to get along. Um, And in terms of them being special, uh, as people, as individuals uh uniquely who they are, that comes through hopefully in the in the uh, in the transference in my uh rapport with them, my mm-hmm. regard for them, my enjoyment of them, and my uh, sometimes adoration of them um, but the idea uh uh that no you 're not special. <laughs> Mm-hmm. you're not specially terrible you're not specially wonderful you're just a person uh, people are really hard and this is about learning how to master each other and then like she says and then go along your way and do it uh, so you don't need uh, this anymore you can do this yourself and come in as needed awesome uh, yeah
0: okay thanks so much Dan I appreciate your thoughts on the, on
2: this episode you're welcome and it's a great it was a great interview Jason